Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 25th of February with me, Ian Welsh. Coming up is a conversation I had recently with Craig Mills, CEO of data business Visuality. We talked about how companies are changing the ways in which they gather and engage with corporate data and its importance in allowing all functions in a business to collaborate for change. And earlier this week, I spoke with Natasha Bodnar about Innovation Forum's upcoming Business and Climate Action Conference. First, though, is some sustainable business news. The government of Singapore has announced a significant rise in what heavy polluters need to pay for carbon emissions as the state aligns itself with more challenging climate targets en route to achieving net zero carbon emissions by mid-century. Singapore had previously only committed to net zero in the second half of the century as soon as viable. The cost of a tonne of carbon is set to reach 50 to 80 Singapore dollars, up to around 60 US dollars by 2030. Current carbon price in Singapore is around 5 Singapore dollars, one of the lowest in the world. The carbon price will rise in stages to 25 Singapore dollars in 2024 and to 45 Singapore dollars in 2026, significant hikes. The scheme currently covers power, waste and other industry facilities that account for 80% of Singapore's emissions. Those businesses paying the carbon tax will be able to use carbon credits to offset up to 5% of their annual payments. More allegations of forced labour in Thailand have emerged, this time involving prisoners in Thai jails being forced to make fishing nets under threat of violence. The nets are for private companies, among which are exporters to the US. The labour violations were initially uncovered in a Thomson Reuters Foundation investigation, resulting in a report published in December. The US government is now being urged by human rights groups to ban the import of fishing nets linked to the forced labour. Sustainable news website EcoBusiness quotes the Global Labour Justice International Labour Rights Forum as describing the practices as an example of multinational corporations sourcing the lowest priced products while absolving themselves of any responsibility for resulting human rights abuses. The organisation and other members of the Seafood Working Group Coalition of Civil Society Groups have petitioned the US Customs and Border Protection Agency to halt the importation of nets. Under the country's Tariff Act, goods made using forced or prison labour are barred from entering the US and the border agency can issue detention orders against implicated goods. The UK's Climate Change Committee, the official advisory body on climate change for the UK's national government and its devolved administrations, is to focus efforts on delivery and implementation of the country's climate goals. In particular, the committee will turn attention to how the private sector will make the necessary progress underpinned by public policy. Essentially marking a shift in working on what needs to be done to how it will be achieved, the committee has said that it will work with business to ensure that government is clear what companies want from regulation and to help ensure that credible corporate climate commitments are established and implemented. Also to come in 2022 will be briefings for companies outlining how they can go about engaging the public on the net zero transition and to help ensure that the benefits and costs of this are allocated fairly. Worldwide, retailers and brands are continuing to try to outdo each other on eliminating plastic from packaging. Tesco is the latest to trumpet its achievements, announcing that an impressive 1.5 billion pieces of plastic have been removed from its UK business alone since the launch of its Remove, Reduce, Reuse, Recycle, or 4Rs campaign in August 2019. Over the past two and a half years, the retailer has removed plastic-wrapped tinned multi-packs, accounting for 75 million pieces of plastic a year, 50 million pieces of plastic wrapping from cans of beers and ciders, 100 million unnecessary lids from a variety of food and hygiene products, 200 million bags from its online delivery service, and millions of plastic punnets from fruits and vegetables. 
This year, the Innovation Forum's Spring Event Series will include forums on responsible and ethical supply chains, the future of food, and sustainable apparel and textiles. All details of who is participating and how to register for tickets is available on the Innovation Forum website. The next Innovation Forum's Business Action on Climate Change event series will be from the 7th to 9th of June. To find out the latest about the event, earlier this week I spoke with Innovation Forum's Natasha Bodnar. Hi Natasha, good to be back with you. Good to be here Ian, thanks for having me again. Tell us, how's the event in June shipping up? So the Future of Climate Action is looking really great. It's definitely one of my favourite forums that we run, partly because it comes together so well, we get so many great people involved and people seem really excited about this year's event. So yeah, looking good so far. Sure, it's certainly a big event because climate change is so much in the news. Everyone's talking about it. And it's something that everyone's really getting to grips with, particularly thinking about the journey for companies getting to net zero in the next 30 years or so. Tell me about any new additions that we've got to the agenda and perhaps to the, the panellists lineup. Yeah, excitingly, just this last week, we've had um, a couple of partners come on board. Carbon Trust and Lensing will both be uh, helping support the event, which is fantastic. We've also got some really great speakers that have joined recently. Cynthia Williams with Ford. She's the Global Director of Sustainability and Compliance there, which I'm really excited to have her. We've also had Vanessa Miller from Microsoft. She's the Director of Energy and Innovation Impact there. We've had GSK, CDP, Interface all come on board as well, which is exciting. And WRI, which I think will be really interesting to hear from the Deputy Director of Climate Programme. Some great names joining us, Natasha. So what are the themes that are emerging for the agenda? Obviously, this is a climate-focused event. We're going to be looking really at how business transformation, supply chain innovation and low-carbon solutions can help companies get to their net zero targets. Obviously, this is something that is a huge challenge for industries across the world. There's tons of targets and commitments being set, um, and we'll be really looking at the solutions and innovations that are taking place to get to these targets and what benchmarks can be set along the way. How can our listeners get involved? So to get involved, you can either reach out to me directly or you can register on our website. We actually have a discount deadline coming up at the end of this week, which we will extend to podcast listeners uh, till next Wednesday. We still have a few speaking spots available, so you can reach out to me around that. And also there's, like I said at the beginning of the call, partnership and sponsorship opportunities as well. So you can reach out to myself or Anita or Ian. OK, so that's Anita Thompson, who's in charge of partnerships for Innovation Forum. So anyway, that's important, though. £150 saving on conference passes and we'll extend the deadline for that to Wednesday, the 2nd of March. If anyone wants to come to the event from the 7th to the 9th of June, then now is the time to register for your passes. OK, Natasha, thanks very much. Thanks, Ian. As supply chains are transformed, transparency and traceability are ever more important requirements for buyers and brands, driven by customer expectation and stretching targets. Recently, I spoke with Craig Mills from Visuality about some of the changes he's seeing and how companies will engage with data in the future. Craig, why don't you start off by giving us a bit of background to the work of Visuality? Visuality, we've been around for over a decade now. Largely speaking, we've responded to the need of large nonprofits, governments, and academics in helping them share their information, share their data online. So we've had organizations that have wanted to tell the world where deforestation is happening, where illegal fishing is happening, 
tracing the movement of commodities around the world, the climate change emissions, all of these complex scientific data heavy processes. Our job really is to work with these organizations to bring it to life, put it online, make people understand it, get it into the hands of the people that can do something useful with it. Today, we could talk a little bit about how you're seeing data used by companies and how that's changing, how there are trends that you're seeing. It strikes me that there are risks of uh, data overload for companies and data, of course, is useless unless it's presented in a usable way. What sort of approach do you think helps ensure that this is the case, that it is presented in a usable way? Visuality itself has gone through a transition from predominantly working with non-profits into a space where we're getting a lot of demand from companies that are making all sorts of commitments from zero deforestation to net neutral commitments. They are needing systems which will allow them to track, to monitor, to change their operations. And they see data and technology as being a good part of that. And largely, most of that knowledge has been built up in the organizations we've worked with. So now what we're facing is a bunch of companies at various stages in their transition to being sustainable, trying to figure out how to use that same data in their operations. And it's a tricky challenge, right? Not only is this new knowledge for them, not only is there massive volumes of data, especially coming from places like satellites, then what's happening is uh, they don't have necessarily today the expertise to handle it. So overload is a combination of lots of data, but also a lack of capacity in how to handle it. So that's why what, one of the reasons why they're coming to us. What's interesting, though, is that I see in the conversations we're having with organizations, with companies, is really what the question is not so much as we want more and more data. It's how much can we have in order to move forward, in order to act? And that's something that depends on company or you know what industry they're in or what expertise they have. And there's unfortunately no straight answer to it. So how then do you help companies make sense of data? And perhaps let's think about how the sense can be so that different functions within the company can collaborate effectively to push change. Because obviously different parts of a company are used to use the data points in different ways. Yeah, I mean, it's no different to financial data. The CEO may need monthly, quarterly reports on like high level indicators of what's happening with the finances compared to someone who's buying commodities that needs to know budgets and you know, amount they're spending and those kinds of things. The same thing applies to sustainability data. For example, if you look at the food supply chain business, maybe you have a supply chain manager that's making choices maybe once a month on where they buy their beef from. At that point, they need a degree of granularity in the information which allows them to say, well, okay, if I buy it from here, I'll talk bluntly, but if I buy it from here, it's better than buying it from over here. And that's fine. If you aggregate that information on the purchasing choices up to the entire company, then it gives you the possibility to report on how you're doing as a whole company, which is then useful to the board, for example. So then it goes to the board and the board can make decisions at that level. Now, to enable any of those things to happen, it requires this underlying bunch of data, this database of information, which can then sit there as a foundation from which to pull insights from. Depending on type of job you have, maybe you're out in the field and you need something on a mobile phone. Maybe you're sitting in a, around a conference table and you need something on the internet will depend on what tools and what products are made. And actually what's happening that a lot of these companies are going through this sort of journey of figuring out what it is they need in, at their operational levels in the company. But it all stems from this baseline of, of information, of data. How then that process you mentioned just now, the, the figuring out what you need bit, what's the kind of process that companies need to go through to figure that out? Often they don't necessarily know what it is that they need to know. Yeah, that's right. I'm probably not the expert to talk about how companies go about determining indicators for their own business. 
what seems to happen at the moment, it seems to be very top down in a business, right? So they make these large commitments, which are often driven by, they're often driven by nonprofits, intergovernmental processes, which say, okay, all you businesses, you need to be net zero by 2030. So the adoption of those then filters down to say at the whole corporate level. And then at that point, there's a job to be done to see, well, first for awareness purposes within the company, right? So all the pieces of the operation of the company understand what that means. And then you have to go into each part of the business. We've worked with say Mars, and let's say they need to change the recipes for one of their products. Then that requires a piece of knowledge, which may be to do with again, beef or chicken and which one is more sustainable. So then you have to delve in to go, okay, is there any information? Is there any data available to help me make those choices? So it's very much a kind of iterative process. And then you go back up and you go, well, hang on a minute, we don't have any information to figure out whether we can do this or not. And actually, that seems to be the case that's happening a lot when it comes to nature indicators at the moment and biodiversity indicators. It seems to be that companies are going through this cycle of, okay, we'll think about this commitment, we'll see how it works in our operations, we'll look for data, we can't find it. So we'll go, we'll push that till later, because it's too complicated, or there's not enough information on it just yet. And so it's this kind of balance and sort of iterative play between these targets and the data and finding somewhere in the middle, which allows them to move forward, which is where they are. Now, what's, I guess, important is that year on year, they have to look at this again, because the space is moving so fast, and the information that's becoming available is accelerating. There might be a different story in a year's time, two years time. So quality of data, this is something that a lot of people talk about, the importance of having good data, because if you don't have the right, don't have good data, you don't have the level of transparency that so many companies and organisations need. Is there a risk, though, of perfect data being the enemy of good data? So is there an absolute necessity for perfection or can companies or should companies start working with data as soon as they have it available? So I would say that there's no such thing as perfect data, right? So there's, it doesn't really exist and almost the moment it's created, it's slowly getting outdated. You're constantly faced with it. So if anyone's waiting for perfect data, it's, it doesn't exist. So you might as well use what you got. What's important in terms of whether it's good enough is whether you can take action which can be sort of reversed. I mean, take, for example, deforestation. So if you look at the deforestation data maybe five years ago, when Global Forest Watch, an initiative run out of the World Resources Institute, came about, they were publishing yearly data on deforestation. And that gave you enough of an overview of where maybe the bad actors might be or the problems might be occurring, which would allow a business to at least question suppliers and where they're getting the commodities from in certain parts of the world. And that was enough to assess risk and enough to kind of change your business, certainly enough to ask more questions. And then a few years back, they updated that information and it became every three days. And suddenly that gives you a very, very different picture. And actually it introduces new actors into the problem. If you can now see deforestation events happening or forest loss events happening three days ago, you can actually send someone there to look at it in real time. If it happened a year ago, that might not be possible. The forest might already be gone. It changes. And in that case, better data does allow you to act quicker. But the sort of lower temporal resolution data does still allow you to act. So providing you can still act, then it, perfect isn't necessary. That's what we've seen time and time again. There is a problem, though, where sometimes it's not good or perfect, but non-existent. In the case of biodiversity data, many of the places which are most biodiverse in the world have almost no information at all, because most biodiversity data is collected in Europe and in North America. So if you go to places where it doesn't exist, 
then you have to use machines, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning techniques to allow you to guess well. And that's still better than nothing, probably. It's probably there's such a lack of information there that, that in, there's an investment needs to be made in those areas to improve the quality of the data, at least to teach the machines better. Let's come back to Global Forest Watch in a sec, but I want to ask you about machine learning. Is that one of the most striking changes that you've seen in terms of the way that companies engage with data? The fact they have to have computers to interpret it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Companies are becoming okay with modelled data, with data that's derived from machine learning from artificial intelligence. And it's seen as information which is useful to their business. And there's lots of products available out there which have been released by some major tech companies. At first, it allows the academic community to speed up how they do machine learning. So to do detections on everything from flooding to deforestation to even movement of people, right? Actually, what that really is, is machines looking at images and finding insights into those images and then giving that, well, actually that information then needs to be presented in a form which companies can then do something with. And no doubt the acceleration of machines being able to find insights into messy information is really a big change that we see in all sorts of things. Some examples include actually the Stockholm Environment Institute work on an initiative called Trait. They're using machine learning to detect where commodities are going in the world. Like if you present that in a way which has legitimacy and credibility, then people make behavioral changes as a result of that. And there's another initiative called Global Fishing Watch, which uses machine learning techniques to determine whether boats in the sea, almost in real time, are fishing in places they shouldn't be fishing. Both of these things do way more than that, but just for, for simplicity's sake, this is what they do. And in those cases, that information is then again presented, and this is a really important part, and presented in a usable fashion, which is aggregated in a form which is like immediately, the insight is obvious, which then in the case of Global Fishing Watch helps determine where to put marine reserves. It helps determine where fishing vessels are allowed to go or not go. It helps determine whether there's slavery happening out at sea, whether you know, you know, human rights violations are going on. All of these things become possible with machine learning. I think a big part is just the ability to see the invisible and that then changes the way businesses are acting. That comes from machines being able to see insights into data. You mentioned Global Forest Watch. You've been working with them for some time. What's this project or your project with Global Forest Watch achieved? We've been working with WRI and a whole bunch of other partners for must be about seven years now on Global Forest Watch. One of the big sort of statements of Global Forest Watch and WRI is the idea that free and open information changes systems. So just coming back to the point about before Global Forest Watch, the, the state of forests was largely only seen in 10-year reports from FAO, right? Or the occasional academic journal. And so there wasn't this constantly updated version of what's happening in terms of our forests. And that in itself had a huge number of knock-on effects prior to that. And just one purely about inspiration. No one would have thought you could even think about tracking deforestation along the supply chains prior to Global Forest Watch. The amount of effort we thought it would require was so big that it didn't even pop into our minds. And so then you see these other initiatives appearing, which allows you to do things with free and open data, which extends into corporates and into businesses. And so I think that's a major change. I mean, go and look at Global Forest Watch if you want to know the thousands and thousands of individual impacts that happen from stopping deforestation events, changing the way governments manage their forests, where investment goes, stopping companies from operating in places they shouldn't operate in. All those kinds of things are all a result of free, open, transparent information. Now, from quite like a technical level, it also, in the nonprofit stakeholder space, 
it also created a new blueprint of how you even build this type of technology in the world. Pretty much every, the ones that I mentioned already and many others beyond that follow a very similar route. They realize most of the knowledge is held in academics and in nonprofits and most of the action gets taken away from those places. What you need is technology which unlocks all of that to bind these people together. In the case of Global Forest Watch, early days was, it was Google using their infrastructure and their kind of PR machine. It was WRI with the goals and setting the principles of the project and organizing the stakeholders. Visuality was involved in the building of the technology, you know, University of Maryland in the algorithms to detect deforestation. And then on top of that, hundreds, literally hundreds of partners all together using those data products to then do something and to change in that act. Now, that pattern of big tech company, academic, nonprofit, small implementing technology company, plus a plethora of stakeholders is one that's been replicated multiple times since then. And so that has led to some of these other initiatives knowing how to go forward. Also, it's demonstrated how much investment is actually necessary to do these things at an operational scale. And it's significantly more than people ever think. Probably not a surprise to a big technology company that spends billions on technology, but quite a surprise to NGOs that sometimes have got very tight budgets and you know very limited resources to do some of these type of projects. Well, what do you think are going to be the next big steps for how companies and organisations engage with data? And what challenges do you anticipate that your clients will bring to you? Just coming back to the investment side, it's worth thinking about where the money is going to create the knowledge necessary to make all these changes, right? And so traditionally, it's in at the academic world and it's in nonprofits. But recently, probably in the last maybe four or five years, more and more, thousands of percent more investment are going into small startups, private companies to create technology, create products into a market, which is like demanding change in their own organization. So they're looking for like solutions to that problem. So for example, in 2020, I think if I'm right, there was around $80 billion in, invested in climate tech startups. I was looking at this the other day. I looked at one of these lists of top 500 sustainability technology startups, and I picked the first 12 out of that list, which were related to digital science, technology, and data. And I went through those and I thought to myself, in order for the sector to move forward quickly, there has to be this free and open sharing of data, of technology, of knowledge, of algorithms, of as much as you can. You go through these startups, which have had roughly, there's 12 startups, which have roughly $250 million of investment in them, all doing cool, innovative things, and ask the question, how many are making their knowledge, data, technology available to the rest of society? The answer is zero, um, none at all. And that's understandable, right? They're trying to capture value to sell it onto a market so their investors are happy and they make some money, whilst also doing good. But... Most of those organizations now are not going to exist in five years' time. You know, one in 10, one in 12, something like that is the normal odds of these things existing. So then you ask the question, okay, so 250 million of just of the first 13 that I picked are dollars are coming from there. One of those may succeed. What happens to all the knowledge and the data that comes out of that investment? And I'm pretty certain at the end of a startup cycle, which is closing shop, they don't spend another six months packaging up the data beautifully to share it with everyone else in the world, right? And that doesn't happen. So we have this challenge here, which there's this huge sway of investment into an area which is essentially closed, at least closed to start with, and closed for long enough that it's a problem. Then on the other hand, you've got you know, the big corporations which have been around a while, which are trying to 
change their operations and making big promises. And they're actually asking the communities to be more open. They're needing people to be open because they don't want to be footing the bill of all the innovation that is necessary to, to change you know, the whole food supply chain sector. So it's in their interest actually to be as open as possible because this is a systemic problem here. You know, this isn't a quicker way to hail a taxi or to order food to your home. This is the sixth extinction. <laughs> this is a sort of a different level. So I see that as a big challenge. And I, I would hope that maybe at the investor level or at the large governmental level, you would start to see some assurances that enough of this information is made freely available. I mean, you could even have a nonprofit which is funded to unlock startup data or something. So while we're using this successful, innovative model to create products which help change the world, equally that they're slowing themselves down because of the system in which they're in. And so when you ask me what the big challenges are going to be and what we'll anticipate the big challenges are going to be, if I was a big corporate food company right now, I'd be thinking, ah, oh, do I want to be using black box products? I want this stuff to be out in the open and free. Whilst at the same time, the people that are producing it are coming from a space where they have to keep it close until they make some money. Therein lies the challenge, I think. There's obviously technological and data and a million other challenges as well. But systemically, I think that's probably one of the biggest ones. Do you think we're going to have a, then a transition to a greater degree of transparency? And if we are, how then do these companies make their money? So I would say, for example, for visuality, we've got investment from the European Commission to build a product called Langrithen, which is designed to help food companies figure out where the impact of their supply chains are, right? They can go, they can put in their indicators and, and they can say what's happening in the supply chain and we'll give them an estimate of their impact. It takes away more than that and you need lots of consultancy kind of services built on top of that, but essentially that's the thing. Now we've made a decision that all of the data, all of the technology, all of the everything is free and open. If we create knowledge which we think is going to benefit the whole system, then we make it open. That may not wash with someone who's just trying to sell a soft piece of software online, but if you're looking at systemic change, and actually what's necessary at this point in time is that businesses get help in making transitions, and they're willing to pay for that. So for visuality, we think that actually the offer of, of open and free software which we then embed into these people's companies, that's a product that people will pay to have and make money from. And importantly, the extra step in this is to make sure that when people are paying for it, there is a cycle of funding back to the underlying baseline of knowledge, which is going into all of these data products, many of which are built on public data. So there has to be some kind of feedback loop in terms, otherwise the bottom of it withers away. You ask me, how do they make money? Well, we think we can make money with that model. It just means you, maybe you don't do it in the same way as another Silicon Valley startup might do it. Well, it'd be fascinating to see how this develops. I think your really interesting point around the need for true transparency and, and openness of, of data, all these businesses that are, all, as you say, starting up and developing this knowledge, but it will be lost if there's not a sense or a spirit of transparency and openness amongst everybody. So it'd be very interesting to see how that develops. But for now, uh, Craig Mills, CEO of Visuality, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Ian. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the analysis and interviews, including new written news updates at the beginning of every week. And don't forget also to take advantage of the £150 discount available now to register for the Business and Climate Action event in June. Everything you need to know about this and all of the Innovation Forum Spring Event series is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.